When you vote this year, will you vote in your own interests or will you vote in the interests of New Zealand society as a whole? Our politicians think you'll vote for yourself, but our first guest says they might be wrong. Dr Catherine Knight is a writer, historian and policy practitioner. She says New Zealanders would vote for themselves over others if only they had the chance to. Catherine joins me now. Hi. Nice to have you on the show today, and uh, congratulations on a piece you wrote for Bernard Hickey's Substack newsletter, The Car Car, this morning, which started this conversation. Um, You observe that political parties are treating us in a certain way. What way is that? Yeah, so, um, yeah, really interesting. I was I was actually reading a piece by Daniel McLaughlin on, on this, you know, the idea that we've kind of moved away from values-based policymaking of the past and it's more about kind of selling the product and the currency being, you know, the most votes on election day and, and you know, so out, out come the surveys and the focus groups and the incessant polls to um, nut out, you know, what will get the most votes. Um, and the long-term vision and um, systems thinking that we really need as we face, you know, climate change and all these, you know, the poly crisis, these all, all these things that are coming at us at the moment, is, is just doesn't seem to be visible. And I guess what I wrote about in, in the piece for the Kaka, which you saw, was that um, this is kind of all based on the assumption that the voter is homo economicus, um, which is, is basically a segment of the economist's imagination. It was an originally conceived by John Stuart Mill, who was a 19th century political economist. And, and the idea being that uh, we, as human beings, and as New Zealanders, as human beings, um, make all our decisions in our daily lives based on a, a solely on a rational calculation of benefits and costs, exclusively guided by self-interest or, or at its extreme by greed. Yeah, and I sort of quite, I don't know if it's from Mill or not, but um, along the lines that the the baker doesn't bake the bread for the good of society, he bakes it because it's in his own interest to do so, and that's the kind of the economic model we've inherited, right? We all yeah. act selfishly and the market and society is a result, but you say there are other ways of looking at the world. Absolutely, yes, and, and not just me. I mean, lots of researchers have been have been looking at this, and um, anthropologists and economists and the like, um, who argue. Uh, and among them, there are the likes of economists Tim Jackson and Kate Raworth, who I think you know RNZ have, have interviewed before in the past too, uh, that, that point out in their research that history is just littered with examples of cooperation, collaboration and care. And that is, that is in fact the human being's natural disposition, not competition and the callous pursuit of self-interest. And in fact, if we look at human history, in many, if not most traditional communities, um, people simply would not have survived if it were not for deeply rooted, you know, socially structured cooperation. Has anything changed? Haven't politicians always appealed to what what's in it for me? Yeah, look, um, I it, it's hard hard to tell really, but I do think with um, in post, and I'm not, you know, a political scientist, and it would be great to perhaps get a political scientist on to discuss this, but. 
Certainly, I think with the advent of MMP, um, politicians and political parties, and, and this is across the board, you know, not, not um, picking on any particular party, um, but certainly the main parties are really, really focused on, you know, what will get us the most vote, votes. And, and policies are seen more as, you know, just like products, basically, that you market and you use marketing strategies, just like big corporates do. But um, what, I, what I found really interesting, GC, was um, this, this recent um, One News Varium poll um, that, that was asking New Zealanders about whether the promised tax cuts would um, influence their voting decision. And I was really fascinated to see that 50% of those who responded said they probably wouldn't or they definitely wouldn't. Um, which was a higher number uh, compared to 16% who said they definitely would be influenced by tax cuts and 27 that said they probably will. And I was really pleasantly surprised by that. And I wondered whether that does suggest um, that New Zealanders aren't the self-interested, wealth-maximising human beings we are made out to be. Yes, and that they may indeed care about the world beyond their own economic status. Um what does the alternative look like? What is the alternative to treating us like homo economicus? What, is, what sort of campaign does that look like? Have we ever seen anything like that? Well, you look, I don't know because it possibly in the 1970s, um, you know, when the limits to growth um, literature was really, you know, hitting, hitting the world, hitting the globe, and, you know, we had the values party, et cetera. I, I, I'm not sure uh, at that point because I was very, very little <laughs> and didn't really follow politics that closely as a toddler. But, um, but, it's hard to say, but the th what I can say, GC, is what I would love to see uh, being the topic of conversation right now. And and I sort of argued, I think, in my piece that um, for the kaka, which you saw, that w basically New Zealanders, I think, if given the... Um, Given the opportunity to to be supported, to consider and to, and see for themselves, and discuss the evidence of the planetary predicament and and our country's frankly vulnerability to the shocks that we that are sure to come, that we would likely respond. Uh, that we need to fundamentally reassess the way we live and what we prioritise in our economy, um, to put well-being first rather than the blind pursuit of perpetual growth. Um, but to do that, we need political leaders and, and people of influence in, in society to be talking about this and talking about an alternative uh, to what we currently have. Um, and that, you know, I think we can broadly call the wellbeing economy. Um, I've also talked a lot recently in, in what I've written about this concept, a policy goal of sufficiency. Um, but you know what? What an what an economy of sufficiency or well-being, a well-being economy would focus on, is delivering well-being rather than perpetual growth, uh, as the current economic model does, um, and the blind hope that that new wealth that's created will eventually trickle down to the people who most need it. Um, and it would be an economy that provides for the needs of future generations by focusing on what is enough for the current ones. 
And perhaps most perhaps most importantly, it would be an economy that recognises and operates within safe ecological limits. Um, and many listeners will be probably familiar with planetary boundaries, um, the idea of planetary boundaries, which has developed have been developed by scientists at the Stockholm Resilience Centre. And in the fact that at the moment we are overshooting through six of those nine boundaries with climate change actually being only one of those. But we don't get any discussion of any of this. There is no discussion of limits to growth or any of this um, in the current you know, political discourse. It's taken as a given that economic growth is uh, uh, the, the answer and um, an answer without any sort of attached problems. Um, by the way, great to hear you mention the Values Party. I do remember that 1978 election because my dad was a candidate for the Values Party in Hamilton East. Um, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are signs. There are signs looking around the world. You mentioned Ireland's president, who apparently is on your wavelength with, the, with this. Yeah, well, and and to be honest with you, Jesse, I think he's been on, it's probably the other way around, I'm on his wavelength, <laughs> because I think he's been talking about this for a lot longer than I have. Um, but yes, he, he has repeatedly condemned the obsession with economic growth and urged for the rebalancing of economy, ecology and ethics. Um, and and what is really interesting about him, he's I, I think he's probably in his 80s now, he's got an academic background. He is very much loved in, in Ireland, um, so he's not poo-pooed or kind of sidelined. Um, the, the difficulty, with, uh, I guess, with him is there's limitations there because he is more a political, um, he, he's kind more of, of at, the, at the helm. Yeah, more like a, exactly, and rather than kind of in the, at the executive level. But his messages are very well supported. Um, it is a matter of kind of translating those into reality at policy level. You think that if someone was bold enough in an election campaign to offer some of the ideas uh, that you're suggesting, and to be fair, there probably are people, um, particularly on, uh, among the minor parties, who are talking more like this, um, but you, you think if one of the major parties offered this, I guess it's an alternative view of leadership and an alternative view of um, of voters, that, that voters would respond, and, and you have the polls that indicate that would happen. Yeah, look, I, I really, really do. And it's actually about, you know, telling telling the story. So one part of it is telling the story that, you know, there are very real limits to growth. We cannot, we, we do live, it's very, very simple mathematics. We live on a finite planet, therefore it follows um, that, you know, the resources that we can tap into, the energy, are also finite. That is just very, very simple, simple mathematics. Um, and on the other hand, the, I think the thing that we do not do well is we constantly contrast. It's, it's like they're at opposite ends and you can't have both. We are constantly juxtaposing um, economy against environment. So you can either protect the environment or you can grow the economy. You can't have both. The, the beauty and the strength of a well-being economy um, framework way of thinking is that actually uh, you cannot have a vibrant economy and social system without a thriving environment. Got it. And, and in fact, um, that an, an economy that put 
uh, well-being at its centre rather than growth would not be a sacrifice. And this is the story we really need to be telling and, and, and showing through actual examples. And there are real examples out there in the world, like Costa Rica, among others, that is often cited, where um, with a well-being economy, we would have more connection with the places we live. We would not necessarily have you know, higher incomes, but we'd have more time to spend with loved ones. We would be more connected with more as a community. We'd be more localised. We'd grow more of our own food, be more sufficient as you know, local economies. Um, and what is there not to, to like about that? Most people on their deathbeds don't go, oh, darn, I really wish... I'd got that latest, you know, smart TV. <laughs> okay, you know, Catherine, I thank really you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed talking to you today. People could find your essay on uh, Bernard Hickey's Substack, and um, thanks so much for leading this conversation. Oh, my pleasure, Jesse. Thanks. Dr. Catherine Knights, a writer, historian, and policy practitioner on the idea of offering voters something more this election.